0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation tonight, we are visiting with the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, Larry Towton, the book, The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. We've often heard this uh, false promise of socialism. We're kind of seeing some of this uh, play itself out, I think, uh, in the wake of what's been going on here in the United States in the last uh, couple of three years here. Uh, but, but, Larry, certainly this was sort of uh, brought to perfection in countries like the the former Soviet Union. We're seeing a lot of it, too, in Europe. Um, and this idea that, uh, as we said before, um, uh, instead of the government serving the people, the people serve the government. How does that, when we create that, that government God neutral atmosphere and suddenly people are there to serve the government instead of the other way around and we have exercised God from the public square. How does that, what does that picture look like? Paint that picture for our (laughs) listeners.
2: Sure. uh, Let me give a concrete example of of what that looks like. Um, The kind of governments that appear in totalitarian regimes didn't happen by accident. They came about because uh, the people with the guns <laughs> were, were a people who had a different view of human life. And I want to be clear, most of them were people who believed very sincerely that their view was the correct view and that they were doing uh, uh, the world uh, a favor by doing what they did. People like Vladimir Lenin and Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot and, and so forth. Uh, and, and what it ultimately looks like is this. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who was not himself a Christian, but who was unquestionably heavily influenced by, again, what I call the grace effect in my book, The Grace Effect, that is, by the presence of Christians. Uh, he, I mean, he had his own translation of the Bible, for heaven's sake, and, and required that it, that it be used uh, in his own teaching. Um, a guy like Jefferson is quoted as saying, it's better than that ten uh, guilty men should go free, then that one innocent man should be uh, um, imprisoned for something that he didn't do. Now, contrast that with, with the view in, let's say, Russia, for example. A few years ago, well, now it's been 12 years ago, in 1999, there were bombings that were taking place there um, by Chechens uh, who were protesting the war in their part of the world and, and, uh, and so conducting some terrorist acts in places like Moscow. Well, once they knew that it was somebody uh, from that region of the world who was conducting uh, these bombings, the Russian response was to arrest 11,000 people from that part of the world. Uh, The bombing stopped but you see they had because they had no respect for individual life and liberty they thought nothing of of uh, taking that sort of action so in contrast to, to Jefferson's view here was a view that said it's better that, a, that that 10,999 people who didn't do something should be arrested in order that we might catch the one who did and all of this is born out of our view of humanity and when you kick that block out, which is the foundation of Western culture as we know it, uh, what you're left with is, is, uh, is a world that's void of grace. You're left with a world that is a that is, uh, uh, void of laws that have any anchor in the absolute. And so on what grounds do you protest your own government? All effective reform movements in the West have appealed to God. They've appealed to higher laws. The abolitionists did this. The reformers in Britain um, did this. uh, Martin Luther King Jr. did this. uh, Indeed, um, the founding fathers of this country did the same thing. But if you no longer acknowledge a higher power, to what court do you appeal when your government becomes a wicked and oppressive regime?
1: Well, and as you point out in that example, it's the difference between revenge versus justice. Uh, Absolutely. Somebody commits a crime and they say, you know, we want to bring about justice. And so we're going to interview and research and investigate until uh, we're able to either ascertain exactly who the culpable parties are or going to smoke them out, so to speak, or they're willing to come forward as opposed to, well, somebody has done something here that's wrong. And so in order to um, eke out not justice, but revenge, if nobody comes forward, that's OK. Shoot them all. I mean, Stalin, as you oh. point out, was, was infamous for this kind of thing. Uh, there at one point was the notion that there had been uh, some, uh, well, I'll put it this way. There had been a lack of full commitment to some of the commands of the the commander-in-chief, uh, Joseph Stalin, during World War II. And um, uh, there was kind of the feeling at the time that a couple of key battles, specifically some of the fighting for Stalingrad, had been lost because of it. And the answer to all of that uh, was not to try and bring those that did not follow his orders uh, to justice, but but rather just kill everybody, which he did. And, and he ended up wiping out thousands of key military leaders that many argue uh, was a significant setback uh, to Russia's ability to effectively defend itself against the Germans in the Second World War.
2: Of course, uh, you and I know that the, the rebuttal to that would be to say this, oh, that's so unfair, that's just one madman. But no, it isn't just one madman. This is, this is the result of an entire culture that comes off of the rails. And the result is, and my daughter Sasha, having lived um, or herself being the the product of this kind of Soviet thinking, I uh, mean, you know, Ukraine has is, is, has been uh, the uh, you know uh, uh, what shall I say the, the redheaded stepchild to uh, uh, to the to Russia for centuries. Um, that the result was that. To put it even more flesh and blood terms, is the complete degradation and the devaluing of human life. Let me use another example that was recently in the news. Perhaps your listeners are aware of this video that that went viral on the Internet and made big news of a a child in China where the cameras on the street caught images of of a toddler who wandered out into the road, was hit by a van. The van backed over the child, and then when they realized they'd hit a child, they drove off. 18 people, the cameras recorded 18 people who walked by and saw this child crying and the blood pooling around her. Another vehicle came along and whack, hit her again, and killed her. Now that is a horrifying story, but it raises some interesting questions. Was this just a unique event in China? Well, we now have discovered that there are other reports coming from all over China that it isn't unique. And Americans, whether they're Christians or not, They hear a story like this, and they're horrified by it. But why are they horrified by it? They're horrified by it because whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they are deeply influenced by the Christian understanding of what human life is, and we don't treat it like roadkill. And so to answer your your question of of a few minutes ago, what does a world look like when it is absent Christian influence? That's what it looks like it looks like a place where the government doesn't care for people and people don't
1: care for people. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. KFAX listeners are intimately aware and, and uh, familiar with the story that Larry shared of what happened in uh, the the south of China here about three weeks ago, if memory served me right, uh, and as you'll know at the time, I, I articulated my absolute utter disbelief that someone would, would commit an action of hit and run like that, and clearly when you saw the video, you saw that the, the van hit the child, roll over the child, the driver paused for a moment, think, that I hit something? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, and then proceed on and roll over the child the second time. If that wasn't horrific enough in and of itself, that, as Larry points out, 18 passers-by over the course of about 12 minutes, walked past that child as the blood was pooling below her and made no effort to do anything, summons anyone, contact authorities, absolutely nothing, which I think is a very apropos example of what the influence of atheistic communism does to the very soul of mankind. We'll pause on that point and come back with more. A look at the grace effect, how the power of one life can reverse the corruption of unbelief.
0: And now,
3: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back to our conversation. Larry Totten, my guest, author of The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. Your experiences of what you saw and witnessed during this process in the Ukraine, as we say, uh, this a nation under Soviet rule uh, pulled into and part of the Soviet Union uh, for many, many decades. They had suffered horribly during the Second World War, had been a very focused attack by the, uh, the Germans during the war. Uh, there was tremendous amount of genocide that took place. So there are killing fields, so to speak, even in the Ukraine because of what happened during that war. Um, and then of course here a nation under the influence of of atheistic communism for the better part of, of second seven decades. Tell us a bit about what you saw and the experience in the process um, of adopting Sasha from an orphanage and what you saw in Ukrainian culture juxtaposed against what we know of of Western culture that has the strong Judeo-Christian acknowledgement of God's existence, we'll call it, influence.
2: Sure. Um, well, we live in a culture that right now, as I was listening to your program, you were talking quite rightly about how uh, uh, there is this effort, to drive Christianity from the culture. And as I like to say, it's being treated increasingly like smoking. You know, it's, it's an unpleasant thing, and none of us want your secondhand religion, so why don't you go do it in the designated areas, but don't bring it into any of the public sphere. What I'm trying to say in The Grace Effect is this. and It's a wonderful life. George Bailey is given a, 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 a believes he doesn't bring much to the table and he's given a glimpse by an angel of what his hometown of Bedford Falls would look like if he had never been born it's not even called Bedford Falls it's Pottersville and it's a terrible place well I'm arguing in the grace effect that, that America would be a Pottersville to the 10th power if you remove the Christians from the culture what you have is the kind of things that we experience where human beings are are not treated as having intrinsic value. Uh, My daughter, Sasha, had been abandoned at birth. She'd been raised in three orphanages. Orphanages, by the way, that were all running off of atheistic principles. What do those look like? Well, those are principles that say that human beings don't have souls. We only need to address physical needs. Uh, and they they scarcely address those. I mean, children weren't given um, a hot shower. She was given one bath a week. She wore the same clothes. Uh, She wasn't given toilet paper. Um, She had exposed nerves and damaged teeth. She was given no education. She's HIV positive. These were the kinds of things that were going on in the orphanage, and and that's before I even get to the the kinds of things like human trafficking. Um, The children, 30% of those who have uh, uh, special needs will be dead by the age of 18. of the girls will become prostitutes, 30% of, uh, of the children will, will become uh, substance abusers, 10% will be dead. You know, these are, these are the, the kinds of things that happen in a culture when you begin with the wrong premise. You see, a worldview is, it's like glasses through which you understand the world, and your, your view of God, uh, of, of his character... Um, or his existence and non-existence will determine how you view man, and that will in turn influence the kind of government that you create. And the kind of governments that they created saw human beings as temporal beings who were there to serve the eternal state. And this stands in, in stark contrast to a traditional Western view, which is based on a Christian worldview, by the way, that says that man is an eternal being. And the state is a temporal institution that is there to serve him. So we begin to see just how radically the absent, absence of Christian belief, it's you knock over that domino and they just keep falling.
1: And you really see then this juxtapose of the notion of government serving the people, which is uh, traditionally the the, the the Christianized Western viewpoint of democracy, uh, such as what we have in, in countries like the United States or Canada. And then just the opposite, the, the 180 of that, where the people are there to serve the government. And, you know, that that might just seem to be an easy flip. But there is something very profound about that, and we're going to have Larry articulate it at a deeper level exactly what is the impact of that. And I think it's important, and I'll say this just before we take a timeout because I know we're a a bit late for the break here, but I think it's very important that we pay close attention to this because we're in the middle of a big political cycle right now. We are facing uh, a scant year from uh, this month, uh, one of perhaps the most pivotal, elections that this nation has faced. And we're seeing slowly the shift taking place um, in the American psyche, in the American politic, uh, away from uh, the allowance of the influence of grace on our lives, uh, a, a, a pulling away from the transforming power of grace, as uh, Larry Towden articulates inside his new book, "The Grace Effect." And instead of saying that we need to embrace the impact, the influence of the Judeo Christian ethic uh, as the the compass, the moral compass that drives our nation. Instead, we're moving towards more of an institutionalized atheism. We see this taking place in politics. We see the effect of it in the public schools. Uh, Now it's getting to the place where you know if you're going to practice your religion, make sure that you do it quietly, privately, and behind closed doors so that nobody is aware of it. The notion of sort of banishing Christianity from American public life. What is the impact of all of that? What if we could just wave a magic wand, and be done with the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic from public life. What would the new public look like? Many of the lessons that Larry brought back from his experiences in the Ukraine, I think, are ones we need to take very careful note and consideration of. Let's talk a bit, Larry, about the experience your family had in the adoption of Sasha um, and the the change about the turnabout rather that's taken place in her life.
2: Uh, e- e- yes, uh, boy, I tell you, it's been huge, and uh, and I want to be clear that this book isn't—it's uh, you know, not Anne of Green Gables or Heidi or Christie or something like that. There's a much larger story and narrative that is uh, that is being told here about uh, culture itself. But Sasha is a metaphor here um, for what what God can do to entire nations, and in her own life, she had uh, she had experienced uh, the the material, the spiritual. The the uh, emotional uh, and intellectual deprivation that that comes in a society that is absent the what I call the grace fact when that's not there the kind of common graces that God gives through uh, the presence of Christian people there is a, there is a a, a, a very uh, ugly side um, of life and. Uh, here she was in circumstances like that we bring her back um, to the states um, you know it's it's a little uh... you know exciting for us to have observed in her she's been with us for about two and a half years now but to, to, to see her um, experience so many things for the first time um... a warm uh, a warm bed her own bedroom um... a hot shower everyday boy she really runs up my hot water bill. <laughs> um, she enjoys those things. She enjoys um, having a father, a mother, um, brothers. These are things she gives thanks to God for every day. And they're the things that the typical American child, of course, would would um, take for granted, um, would have that opportunity to take for granted. Also seeing her get appropriate uh, medical attention. Um, imagine going around for years um, with exposed nerves um, in your teeth. Your teeth are, as, uh, as the pediatrician said, um, her teeth were bombed out. Um, She had to have, uh, I think it was 17-fold. I I believe that's correct. And, uh, you know, so seeing this kind of transformation and then watching Sasha step from a culture where human life was not deemed to be as valuable and where there wasn't appropriate care for the orphan uh, into a culture where there is still a, a residual of this kind of grace of which I speak, uh, is rather extraordinary. And, you know, and for her to to, to uh, step from a world that the radical um, secularists would give us, the grace effect is giving you a picture of what that world would look like. And I don't mean, by the way, that they are aware of it. They're very well intentioned. They think that they can maintain the kind of culture that we currently have um, and still, you know, get rid of God. But it's like cutting off the limb uh, on which you sit. It just simply cannot be done. So uh, I think Sasha's life trumps any argument that anyone can make against the power of God's grace to transform a life.
1: Larry, we appreciate uh, you joining us tonight to tackle this topic that, quite frankly, an hour doesn't even begin to to do it justice, Uh, at least to give the listeners a glimpse of Obviously, the reality of what we're facing in our country today. But but what the end result can be if if good men fail to do anything, if good men do nothing, if we do not prevail uh, in standing firm for our faith, not just for the preservation of our rights as people of faith in our country and the ability to exercise freedom of religion, First Amendment, blah blah blah, but for the literal preservation of the nation and what this country has stood for, for both ourselves and for the world. The book again is called The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. The book, as I mentioned earlier, is published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Larry's website at graceeffect.com. That's graceeffect.com. And again, our thanks to uh, Larry Towton for being with us.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We think often of
1: what it means, the, the significance of, of the spiritual heritage that uh, many of us have, those that have a connection to the history of the church and faith um, through the faith of our fathers. And as much as we oftentimes ponder what that means, how often do we stop and think about the faith of not just our fathers, but the faith of our sons? The reality is that as much as the gospel message is timeless, we're seeing the way current generations react to it. And and most notably, how oftentimes we're beginning to see a shift taking place. That while the faith of our fathers and that generation and maybe the current generation is strong, the faith of our sons and our daughters is on weak grounds. There is some new research out by the respected pollster, George Barna. In fact, he's been a guest on this program many times that would suggest that there is a frightening trend taking place amongst 20 somethings in our country today. And to get some insights on this topic, David Kinnaman joins us. He has written a new book entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. He serves also as the president of the Barna Group. And David, great to have you on the program
3: thank you for having me. My pleasure.
1: You know, we always want to hear about uh, the enthusiasm of young people in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that fondly there's a good percentage of those listening to our conversation right now who found Christ uh, as young children or as teenagers and have continued on in faith uh, for years and years and years, and yet to begin to see that there's a a trend taking place that isn't a very encouraging one, I I think ought to cause all of us to pause and ask the question, what's happening? If we understand that the Gospel is timeless. Then, what of Christianity today in the West, in North America, that suddenly is not maintaining the same appeal, so to speak, for those in that uh, special age group of late teens into their 20s?
3: Well, what's challenging for us now is that the culture has changed so quickly over the last 10, 20 years that we make the argument in the research that essentially people are more enculturated than ever. They're more captive to our culture than we've ever seen a generation done so. And this is true of young Christians. This is true of young non-Christians. Uh, they have more access to all sorts of ideas and worldviews through technology. Uh, they have you know, exposure to uh, you, you know, sexuality and all sorts of things earlier in life. Media is giving them a certain sort of worldview and perspective. And so, for those reasons, and many others, a lot of social changes—they're getting married much later, they're having children much later, they're responding to the divorce culture that the boomers largely, you know, enacted in our culture. And so, for many reasons, they're 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 disengaging from the church, they're disengaging from Christianity in some cases. And we do need to pay attention to this cultural reality and how is it that we actually raise young people of deep faith?
1: Is this then less about? Perhaps a particular age group then on the on the continuum, uh, David, as it is suggestive of the church losing some of its grasp, some of its influence then on culture?
3: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you ask me that, because when you talk about this phrase, you lost me, we very intentionally titled it because that's the voice of the next generation about the church. You know, you lost me. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. And part of it's because they're so distracted. They're so busy doing other things. But I, I think you're actually really on point with that question in that, what we're finding from a lot of our research is it's certainly true of the next generation and how we work with them, but it's also true of all of us in this culture, of any of any generation, that we're more distracted, our attention spans are shorter, we have more, there's more things that are vying for our, you know, time and attention and mind space, and so I think it's more difficult for the gospel to go forward in this, you know, very abundant, um, pluralist, uh, you, you know, very, you know, very rich country that we have. And and no nation has ever been able to really withstand the prosperity that that America currently enjoys. I think that's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves: is how do we disciple in that era, not just the next generation, but all of us?
0: Well,
1: and I think not just the appeal, as you're suggesting, of of all that uh, that uh, the culture, so to speak, has to to offer in every sense of the word. <clears throat> but then, to it strikes me, David, that that relationships. Uh, have changed uh, pretty significantly. I mean, for example, having grown up as a product of the 1960s and 70s, having come to faith in Christ in the 1970s, um, it didn't take a lot of explaining to do when we talked about uh, what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in fellowship with very God himself. I mean, we were all in that era longing for a a deeper, more significant, more satisfying relationship on on the human level. So that, that meant something to us, and those were words and phrases that resonated with with the longing that we were seeking to satisfy, that said, look at the way things have changed for this generation that has grown up on uh, cable television and the internet and texting, and you know, relationships today are about what you do on the backside of an iPhone as opposed to the level of of, of contact that the just pure human contact that we used to have has changed so radically. And so, I would wonder if part of this is just the notion of how we do relationships has changed so much Um, if I can't relate to a personal one-on-one conversation with my dad because I'm used to doing all this stuff electronically how can I possibly think about a personal one-on-one relationship with a God that I can't even see?
3: That's that's really well said and when you think about it so when you talk about a youth group or a college ministry and in the past 20 years ago that provided a sort of extracurricular place for a person to have a relationship uh, not only with God but also with with each other with other Christians and what we're seeing with the youngest generation of teenagers now uh, young Christians is that the youth group experience is even changing in that they don't need the social network of the youth group like they did in the past it's it's really more about either their pursuit of God or their pursuit of other kinds of things um, you know we're finding that their their engagement in youth ministry is, is is changing and I think this goes to the heart of it that you know What we found in this research is that it's not enough for us just to have young people who are engaged in church services, and, and really as parents or youth pastors or as uh, any kind of leader within a church, we need to do a better job of recognizing that the signs of faithfulness aren't just attendance at a program, that in fact, as we're living in an information world, I think that Jesus is getting lost in the data stream of all the, the tweeting and Facebooking and digital activities that we have. And just as you say, it's hard enough to have face-to-face relationships with others. I think this idea of connecting with a real and holy and personal God is actually really changing for this generation, and and unfortunately most churches and parents say, well, you know, my my young person is there, they're they're attending faithfully, and that's not in my mind enough of a measure based on all this research of faithfulness.
1: It's part of the problem, too, as we suggested here, David, that the way we do relationships um, certainly in the West today is changing pretty drastically. It's easy for people to hide behind the facade of Facebook and MySpace and so-called social media where you can kind of, uh, you can be as vulnerable or not as you choose to be. You can be as real or not as you choose to be. And when suddenly you're now trying to confront young people with a real, vibrant, true, pure, um, all of the bells and whistles and, and, and sort of facade, all stripped down, personal relationship with God, I would, I would wonder if we couch it in the terms that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if that doesn't scare a lot of young people today, because they look and say, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know me that, that real or that intimately or that personally. I would rather hide bef- behind the facade of who I want you to think I am, because I'm too afraid to show you who I am.
3: Yeah, I think that's true, and and we learned from our research that a lot of these young people feel as though they have to live split lives, uh, split personalities between their church self, their digital self, their family self, their school self, and and so this era of, you know, helping, and, and this is an opportunity for families and churches and all of us who care about this next generation to help reconnect the soul and the person and the heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus talks about. And, and so I think there's a great opportunity for churches but this idea of split souls um, you think about that even in terms of sexuality we see this from the research that many young people feel split they, they have to be one person in church traditionalist and buttoned up and you know uh, careful about what they say and then something else entirely when it comes to their sexual you know habits and lives and so we we have to do a lot of work I mean there's a lot of things we should be concerned about with this generation and I think there's a lot of things we ought to be concerned about about how we as the church respond in a healthy way to the culture and how we prepare students to live in that culture.
1: Indeed so. And the other thing, too, is, you know, oftentimes, not only is there this sense of a split, as you suggest, but then I think a lot of young people feel as if they're being forced to choose one or the other. It's like the faith of my fathers or uh, whatever option B is. And we'll talk more about this aspect. We continue our conversation tonight with David Kinneman. He is the president of the Barna Group, a new book out that is an eye-opener. It's called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians are leaving church and rethinking faith as this edition of Lifeline continues.
3: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're back to our conversation with David Kinnaman. David is the president of Barna Group, Barna Research. You're very familiar with the work of George Barna. They have taken time to to study, in particular, the faith of our sons and daughters and to see in what direction all of that is headed. And all of this revealed inside the pages of a new book, by the way, entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church. David, as you indicated, and we were talking a bit before the break, what's really happening here is that the, the, as the church is losing its influence On culture today and as the stranglehold of the power that said culture has on young people today is as ever increasing. I mean, it's clear to see how this is being set up as kind of a, a perfect storm, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it really is, and I think it's this whole research project. I mean, I'm interested in it as a researcher. I'm also interested in it as a parent. I'm interested in as a, a pastor's son who who grew up in the church, and it's really for me helped me understand how do we actually work with this generation in the midst of a changing culture. And you know, the title is strong because that's the, what young people say about the church. But it's really a very hopeful project about. How do we actually reconnect with this generation? How do we actually learn faithfulness in a new context? We use the story of Daniel, um, you know, from Scripture, where, you know, he was taken out of a, a comfortable social setting you know, as a young Hebrew and taken into this culture of Babylon. We learn about that in the book of Daniel in in Scripture. And uh, we use that story really often in the book as a way of understanding what does it mean to be faithful in an entirely new context. And I think that's what we're facing now with this generation of young Christians.
1: All right, let me give you an example. This is right out of the front pages here. Uh, In fact, a story that appeared on ESPN regarding uh, Tim Tebow. Everybody knows that he's been taking some flack Uh, Most specifically, recently, former Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer uh, in a radio interview that uh, basically said that uh, he wished that Tebow would curb, quote, his references to Jesus and his faith, um, saying effectively, we're getting the message. You don't have to continue to remind me time and time again Uh, through the lens of this research. uh, Talk to me about that scenario.
3: Yeah. So, what's interesting about this is there's both the trend of you know young people losing their faith, and there's also what we call a counter trend that we describe in the book of young people who stick with faith and why. And and you know I think Tim Tebow is an example of a young twenty something who is very out front with his faith, who certainly has never you know lost his faith such that we know or you know that we can we can document um, at this point. But when you look at, at um, the culture, what is so interesting about what's challenging for young Christians is that their peers are more skeptical of ever than Christianity, and many of these peers actually had backgrounds within either Catholicism or Protestant Christianity. And so I think, I think that's a great example of, you know, here's an example of the counter-trend in Tim Tebow and the, the, the public nature of his faith. We see many other people who are in Hollywood, who are in music, who are in business, who, you know, are very much passionate about uh, the Church and about Christianity. Um, but what's different that we see now compared to the previous generation and generations, say, of the 1960s and 50s, is that there's a bigger gap now between young Christians and their peers, and they're, they're having to reach further in order to explain the nature of Christianity. And, and you know, the one thing we might say is that as, as much as we should su- support and applaud Tim Tebow's public upfront faith, You know, what is it about that that's going to transform culture? You know, it's not just because he acknowledges Jesus that that he's going to be transformational. It's because of the quality of his life and other aspects of his vocation and calling that people will respond to that message. So it's important for us to recognize the skepticism of this generation as well. Is
1: there any attraction to this generation that looks at something like that and says you are repeatedly subjecting yourself to criticism? by doing this. And we've all seen him kneel and pray after a touchdown or uh, during key moments during the game. Uh, It's very attention getting. Uh, He is being ridiculed for it. It, 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 Does it does it work into the logic of this generation as we're trying to understand them better, David, that some people would say, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily subject yourself repeatedly to that kind of criticism for your faith, that there must be something awfully special about your faith. I mean, do, do young people draw that conclusion?
3: Yeah, they do and they're looking for things that are that matter in the world and to their own lives and to their own sense of meaning and their own spiritual journeys and you know this is where I think this is a generation that's very interested in truth and very interested in things that matter. Uh, they're also highly narcissistic and and distracted so it's sometimes difficult for us to get their attention on things but I think they respond to seeing people that are sold out to any cause. I think the difference that we should keep in mind too is that they're a very diverse generation they have come to expect that they should respect and you know give anybody of any faith of any sexual persuasion of any ethnic background i mean of any of any background at all that it you know they, they fully expect that that everyone is equally you know right and equally valid at all times and so there's a certain sense in which not many of these young people that we interview are willing to take huge risks for their own you know their own uh, positioning their own brand in the world. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is a a challenge for them. They're they're not necessarily willing, like Daniel in in the story of the lion's den, uh, necessarily willing to, you know, give up their life on behalf of their faith. And and that's that's an interesting challenge I think we face with this generation.
1: We also have a generation, I think, David, that is very interested in sort of leaving their mark on things. I mean, we're seeing this I think to a degree with some of, not all by a long shot, but some of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters or we think of people that get involved in things like, you know, uh, protecting the planet and animals and things of this sort. It it seems to be a generation that very much is engaged in wanting to make a difference. Do Do we couch some of the impact of Christianity in, in those terms so that there is that sense of attractiveness to it or, or, or two young people buy it rather?
3: Well I think you're right that there's a real sense of, of wanting to make a difference in the world and they're they're very much socially conscious but what we find in our research is some of that is only skin deep for these young people you know they, they, they it's really cool to care in some ways we could say that we've effectively made them consumers of causes rather than uh, what I think Christ calls us to is to be Really spent on behalf of those causes. Yeah, it's
1: funny you mention that. I over the uh, the weekend here, I saw some pictures of Matt Damon, who's apparently filming a new movie down in Mexico, and he's been very much in favor of PETA and urging people. You know, if you can be a vegan, you know, more power to you, and very much on that side of you know protecting animals, etc., etc. And here he's captured attending a bullfight in Mexico City, and I wonder what uh, his PETA friends would say if they saw that.
3: Yeah, there's all these inconsistencies that, you know, we inevitably come to. And I think this is the message of one of the things that Jesus talks about in his ministry is this, the fact that there's so many inconsistencies in our efforts as human beings that it's impossible for us through our own, through our own you know, try harder-ism to just simply work harder at saving the planet or work harder at, at addressing these causes. And I think my my challenge to us as Christians would be in, in understanding this next generation that we don't want to just get them involved in a cause to change the world because it turns out, as we learn from the gospel and from from the Bible, that you know there's nothing new under the sun, and and in fact, you know we we need to have a healthy reverence for the Lord's work. That we should care about these these issues, but we 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 can't solve them in our own human effort and power. And yet at the same time, if our if our faith is simply about you know believe these these things in order to get to heaven one day and convince everyone else to get to heaven because of your faith in Christ if it's if it is simply and only about you know sort of getting people saved and salvation I think it also does this this generation a disservice that they, they really are called and interested in uh, in understanding how their faith gets worked out in the world and so we owe them I think that the depth that following Christ that following the gospel means we're concerned about eternity but we're also concerned about how we live our lives and the quality of of how the kind of impact we have on our neighbors and on our workplaces and on our families.
1: We're talking about a new book you lost me and you know this really ought to sit on the shelf Better put on the desk of um, every youth minister, youth pastor, every senior pastor, everyone who's engaged in organizations like uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Youth for Christ, and so many others, as we gain a better understanding through the research of the Barna Group, uh, the attitudes of where young people are today, and most importantly, what we can do to get a better job at engaging the culture, capturing the culture for the cause of Christ, and as a result, not just reaching young people for Jesus, but keeping them for Jesus. Toward that end, David Kinnaman, author of this new book, are are there some of the trends that we're seeing too, that some people feel as if uh, young people feel as if they have to make a choice? That it's either between kind of launching out on my own identity or embracing mom and dad's religion, or even in some Cases uh, with debates over everything going on concerning uh, science and bioethics and technology, even sometimes uh, young people may, feeling as if they have to choose between belief in God or science.
3: Yeah, I think throughout this book and throughout the research that underlies it, we saw this really this choice that young people felt they had to make between their friends and their faith, between being uh, a young scientist or someone in medicine. And their faith between choosing to doubt or, or being comfortable with the doubts that they have and being faithful. Um, so many different places where young people feel that they, they have to choose between being the Christian they're called to be or being the person who they are. And, you know, that's that's a challenge. I think, again, throughout Scripture, you see this tension where we we have to live, you know, in the world, but not of the world. This is something that Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, the in but not of tension. And I think... That's the tension that every generation has faced. I think is more pressing than ever now with this generation. And throughout the project, again, we talk about the reasons for disconnection, but we also talk about the reasons for reconnection. So for instance, when we talk about having to choose between our faith and our friends, we make the argument that really the church has done an, an inadequate job of talking not just about the, the singular uh, salvation through available through Christ, but how Jesus himself had this heart for outsiders and and really wanted to pursue people around him you know he was he was notorious for hanging out with sinners he had a heart for people that were lost And I think this generation feels as though the church experiences and their parents and the sort of the the nice, comfortable Christian way of life pushes them to choose um, a a, a way of life where they they have to choose the safe, comfortable religious life or exclude their friends. And and really, I think it's a false choice. And in so many of these cases, we learn that the choice between science and faith, between friends and faith, they're false choices that we need to reframe for young people.
1: For everyone who has a heart for young people listening right now, whether they're engaged in full-time ministry or just love the Lord, love young people, what would you say is is the most significant message um, underlying you lost me that you want readers to take away from that can kind of be an action item for the church?
3: Well, I care about this generation enormously. I love the church. I want to see them together. Um, And what we learned is that in so many cases, the the friendships, the relationships that we think we have with this generation, they're not as deep as we imagine them to be. And I was also shocked to find how often these young people had no idea how their faith really intersects their vocation or their calling or what God calls them to do. I mean, as an expression, only 16% of young Christians said they knew how the Bible applied to their field or interest area or profession. And we need to do a better job. I mean, we owe this next generation so much more to prepare them to live in but not of this culture. And I think the research really gives you some tools, not only to understand the disconnections, but really to understand how do we reconnect, how do we learn from this generation and serve them as God pursues them and their heart and their potential service in the future for the kingdom.
1: Some insights inside the pages of You Lost Me, while young Christians are leaving church and rethinking faith. Nobly published by Baker Books, available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on the web. David Kinneman, that's K I N N A M A N, David Kinneman.com. David, thanks so much for the time and the insights.